0: As we turn our attention to God's Word this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about failing. That is, failing. Failing is something we all do, something we'll all continue to do. We're human beings, we fail at things. Um, We fail at things so much that Winston Churchill um, once said that success is actually moving from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm and uh back in the late eighteen hundreds, there was a young boy who didn't learn to read until he was about four years old or i'm sorry speak until read uh, four years, speak until he was about four years old and at sixteen, he failed to pass an entrance exam to the school of his choosing. He did okay in math, but he struggled in nearly every other part of education, biology, the languages, grammar, and so on. He finally made it to school, but after graduating had no clue what he wanted to do. And so um, he decided to be a door-to-door insurance salesman while he figured life out a little bit and no diss on anyone here who might be a door-to-door insurance salesman. Well that didn't work out so well for him either, so he transferred over to the patent office where he would be Like some assistant um, examiner would read and evaluate different patents that were submitted, submitted on inventions. Eventually, though, Albert Einstein found his way into physics. And he would go on to win the Nobel Prize, discover the theory of relativity. He'd also lay the groundwork for quantum theory. Failure after failure eventually gave way to success. Failure is how we learn. It's how we grow. It's sometimes the best pathway to growth. And if you're like me, you can feel like a failure sometimes. You can feel like a failure at your work whenever that project doesn't go so well. You can feel like a failure at school whenever the studying you did or didn't do um, leads to a grade you didn't want. It can feel like a failure at home, that angry outburst at your children, That short temperedness or just defensiveness with your spouse. You can feel like a failure when you look around at other people and you look at their lives and look at yourself and kind of feel like you don't measure up. And when it comes to our faith, you might feel like a failure too. Miss quiet times, that episode of road rage with the Jesus fish on your car, ongoing struggles with sin. Giving into temptations, doubt, fears, anxieties, feelings of fear, shame, and guilt. We can feel like failures. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We are still in Luke chapter 9. Uh, it's like five weeks in. And we're going to look at some failures. The following failures of the apostles and disciples this morning. And we're going to see how Jesus responds in those failings. And we're also going to see that Jesus never fails us in our failings. That we have a savior who doesn't let us go when we fail, but uses those failures for our own good and our own growth. So turn to Luke Luke 9. We'll be in verses 37 to 50. This is what God's word says. The next day... When they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Just then, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son because he's my only child. A spirit seizes him. Suddenly he shrieks and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth, severely bruising him. It scarcely ever leaves him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Jesus replied, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. Well, everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing. He, that is Jesus, told his disciples, let these words sink in. The son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand the statement. It was concealed from them, so they could not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him he told them whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me for whoever is least among you this one is great john responded master we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow us don't stop him jesus told him because whoever is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you equip us, and give us ears to hear your word, give us hearts to receive it. And Lord, would you empower us by your spirit to live it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, we're going to look at three failings of the disciples, three major ways that they failed. And the first is they had a failure to depend, a failure to depend. Peter, James, John, and Jesus just came down from the mountain. Right, They were up on the mountain where they saw Jesus transfigured. They saw, they saw Jesus' glory right before their eyes. And they saw Moses and Elijah standing there. And all of that was over. Moses and Elijah are gone. It was only Jesus. And then they come down the mountain. And just an aside, that the mountain always ends, doesn't it? Like you always have to come back. Down the mountain. You have an amazing experience with faith. Amazing sermon that you probably heard somewhere else. And uh, a season of growth. And you got to eventually come back down the mountain. The experience wears off. The sermon ends. The worship experience stops. The conference is over. The season changes. And you got to step back in to real life. And this real challenges. What's well, no different for these apostles? Because this glory that they beheld on the mountain, Peter, James, and John, was over. Because in one sense, they came back down the mountain and they're surrounded by a crowd of people there. The crowd of people came to meet Jesus and they gathered with the other nine disciples and this crowd. And then suddenly, in The middle of this crowd yells a man louder than all of the other voices. Teacher, I beg you to look at my son because he's my only child. This man, he is desperate. He is so desperate because this this, his only kid, he watches a demon come and ravage this child. Leaving him bruised and foaming at the mouth and shrieking. Scholars think that this demon was probably taking... A medical condition that the kid already had and exploiting it making it even worse so this demon is abusing this poor kid causing seizures and shaking and bruising and convulsion and why is this father so desperate well because he seemingly does everything else including asking the disciples to, to heal the boy and to deliver him from this demon And the text says that they couldn't do it. Wait a minute. Earlier in chapter 9, Jesus gave them authority to to heal people, to, to cast out demons. And we read about them doing such things. But here in this case, they messed it up. They couldn't do it. In the text... Doesn't say exactly what they did to fail, but they failed. And they failed in faith and they failed in dependency. And the way Jesus responds is pretty startling, isn't it? He says, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Jesus gave them power, gave them authority, and he told them to do these amazing things. And he finds out while he's up on the mountain that the disciples who were down below couldn't deal with this this poor guy and his kid. And he's very direct. And he echoes Deuteronomy, which is Moses speaking. And he says, his people, that is God's people, have acted corruptly towards him. And this is their defect. They are not his children, but a devious and crooked generation. That That they've kind of wandered from him that they've not really believed in who he is jesus calls them unbelieving and twisted they lack faith they lacked faith in the promises of jesus they lacked faith in who he was and faith and dependency on what he said and what he sent them out to do they don't believe And their failure is not only a failure of faith. It's a failure of dependency. They didn't believe his word. And they didn't depend on him and his power. They didn't believe what Jesus said. That he sent them out with authority. And they didn't depend on him and his power. Or else they would have been able to heal the demon. So the suffering persists. And the boy Is in pain and the father's in pain watching the boy. And their following failure is on display for this crowd to see because they didn't trust Jesus to provide the strength and the power he promised to provide. They lost their view of who he was and they lost their view of what he said. And as we take the text and hold it up like a mirror, which is what we should do with God's word, is hold it up and like, like, let it look into our own hearts, cause us to look into our own hearts. I don't wonder sometimes how much you and I are like these disciples. Jesus calls us to go make disciples, to go preach the good news. And we're lazy disciplers because we've lost a vision for who Jesus is and what he sent us to do. Or we doubt that he can accomplish What he sends us out to do through us. So we don't share. We're overwhelmed at the task and we fail to do it. And it shows our weak faith in who Jesus really is and in what he claims to do, and to do in us and through his church. That is to make disciples. It the scriptures are like a mirror that show us our own cold hearts. Towards God and His words, sometimes. But there's not just the speaking; it's also the doing. There's the doing good in the world that we're called to do—to love the broken and the wounded, to be a good parent, to be a good spouse, to to work excellently, it, to love others, to be good students, and goodness. We can feel like failures at all of those, and we fail. So often, like the disciples, to live dependent upon God and his power to help us do the very things he calls us to do. We lose track of what is good, beautiful, and true. And we forget to trust God to equip us to do those things. And it turns out for these Twelve disciples, these 12 apostles, it was not really that much different. And this should give us good encouragement, right? Because they just spent all of this time with Jesus. They watched him do amazing things. They, they heard about this, the reading of the scroll and the fulfillment of Isaiah, that he would come to bind up the brokenhearted. They saw uh, people with shriveled hands get healed. They saw demons um, cast out of people. They saw dead people brought back to life. They saw all of these things And yet they seem to have a failure of dependency upon him. And they seem to have a lack of faith still. And what does Jesus do with all this? Well, he still bears with them in their failure. Calls the dad to bring his kid And as the kid comes, the boy is shrieking and thrashing about. It is a violent scene right in front of him as he's convulsing on the ground and foaming at the mouth. But Jesus still demonstrates who he is and what he's come to do. He rebukes the demon. He heals the boy of his disease. And he hands him back to his father. Because Jesus will still accomplish things in spite of the failures of his people. Jesus still works in spite of the failures of his followers. This is good news for you and me. Because I don't know about you, but I make a hash of my faith sometimes. Or my life sometimes. And I need to have a God big enough to still work in my failures. And that is our Jesus. He bears with us in our failures. He never fails us when we fail him. They lack dependency. They fail in dependency. We fail to do the same things. But not only do they fail in dependency, they also fail to understand. Fail to understand. The text said that the crowd is astonished, right? And who wouldn't be, right? You just saw this amazing violent scenario go from a scenario of of just... Difficulty and strife to a scenario of peace and joy. The crowd's amazed. They're astonished. They're like, can you believe what Jesus did? The disciples couldn't do it, but Jesus could. And then Jesus looks to his disciples and said, Hey, let these words sink in. This is verse 44. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Great timing, Jesus. Talk about the ultimate killjoy of a statement, right? You got this this joyful scenario of this man being healed. And Jesus is like, you see, I'm going to be betrayed sometime soon. Jesus wasn't trying to tamp out the joy of the moment. Instead, he was saying to his disciples that what you see in front of you is not the primary way of the Messiah, That the crowd astonishment kind of work is not the primary way that Christ works. It is not the way that he is going to save the world. Rather, Jesus was saying that the way he was going to save the world, that that what he came to do was a way of suffering. He was a man of sorrows, like we just sang, a son of suffering. Jesus was saying that the way he was going to accomplish God's mission and the way he was going to accomplish God, bringing God's kingdom was not through crowd wowing, but through suffering and betrayal and death in an empty tomb. It wasn't going to come from a crowd cheering, but instead come from a mob crying, crucify him. Jesus In this second prediction of his death is saying that to his disciples that the way of the Savior is a way of suffering. Jesus just called the disciples to take up their crosses and follow him. Now he was reminding them that he was going to be a savior that would take up his cross for them. But then Luke tells us they didn't understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it. The disciples couldn't reconcile in their minds their expectation that the Messiah was going to come and and grab hold of power and drive out the enemies. And that what it was going to look like was conquest. What it was going to look like was, was victory. They didn't understand that the ways of God in the world look more like Suffering. it doesn't look like power it doesn't always look like amazement it looks like a bloody cross and the act that demonstrates most clearly God's love for the world and his love for sinners would be the act that was most scorned by the society around them and the text says that for some reason this understanding of what Jesus was about to do was concealed from the disciples. I don't know why. The Bible doesn't give us that. But it wasn't concealed from them. But they would eventually get it. And the text also says, that, in spite of their not getting it, they were afraid to ask Jesus what it even meant. You see, the disciples didn't really understand fully the plan of God. And they didn't bother to bring Jesus their questions. And turns out that we're a lot like them sometimes. We have all these expectations of the way that we think that the God of the universe should act and behave. All of these preconceptions that, that if God is really working in the world, then this will happen like this. And like the disciples, we often don't see the whole picture. We often don't see the whole plan. And, and sometimes we don't even bring to God, like them, the questions we have about why God is enacting in ways that we think he should. But there's a whole book in the Bible, and I've mentioned this before, the Psalms, that contains Christian people following after God, Crying out to God in their pain and, and in their problems. We're invited to do that. See, most of us, when, when God starts acting in ways that don't fit our box for how God acts and behave. We either think God has abandoned us or that he's not God at all. But what God invites us to in his word is. Is to remember that we don't see all of the plan. And that God acts in ways that are beyond us. The disciples don't get his plan. They weren't going to get an answer. But one day it would all come together. This saying that Christ would be betrayed. Would one day come together when they saw a betrayal. And when they saw a cross. And when they beheld a risen savior. And the suffering and the difficulty that we walk through. Will one day all make sense when we behold a, a, a savior with nails in, or holes in his hands and a hole in his side and we will behold his glory and we'll see that God's plan come together. We question God's ways like disciples do. God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why this happens. I don't understand what you mean when you say that. I don't know why you would say that. We read things in his word and we're like, I don't know why God says this or I don't get it. But God wants us to step into faith in who he is. And trust in his plans. We don't understand the way of the Savior for us personally. And we don't often understand the way of the Savior globally either. We've seen people still not understand that the way of our Messiah... That the way of our Lord is a way of suffering. We've seen in recent days, people try to leverage faith in Jesus for power, right? For real power, whether that's political power or platform or influence. If you've recently watched Shiny Happy People, this awful documentary, um, You saw whole people leverage Jesus for power and influence in forgetting that the way of the Savior is actually a way of suffering, not of glory. That the way Jesus chooses to bring his kingdom into the world are through Christians who live different in the world. Not by grabbing hold of power, but by loving the broken. That is not, the way of the cross is not about power grabs. It's not about influence. It's not about just changing society through politics. It's about suffering. It's about the good news. The kingdom of God touches down, not through power grabs, but through a husband and wife living faithfully in their marriage. Through, through parents loving their children. Through faithfulness in the workplace. Through being a good student. Through sharing the gospel. The kingdom of God touches down whenever we live out the ways of Jesus. Through selflessness, service, and through even our sufferings. We bring it by loving God and loving neighbors telling people the good news of a crucified king and a risen Lord. The cross invites us to take a different path, not fight for rights, not fight for power. And like the disciples, we fail to understand his plan. We fail to understand sometimes the way God works. But the good news is that Christ doesn't fail us in our failures. He uses them to shape us and to teach us. They fail to depend on They failed to understand. And finally, my last point, they failed to humble. Third failure was a failure to humble. Love this, that the disciples' response to this Jesus saying and them not understanding is to argue amongst themselves about who was the greatest of them, right? Kind of a funny thing to have happened, right? Jesus is talking about, I'm about to be betrayed. And they're like, Jesus, who's better John or me? And Jesus, he knows. The disciples, they're batting a 1,000 right now in this passage. They just keep stepping in it. And the text says in verse 47, if you look at it, it says, Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him. He told them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. Jesus knows their inner thoughts. He knows their motivations. And he he can sees, see them, the text says. And he doesn't wander away from them like, I am done with you people. He wanders to them and he's like, I think I know what I'll teach them. So he, this child is standing there. He calls them to him. And you see, children in this culture were not highly valued like they are today. They weren't putting in new splash pads at the local park for their kids. Kids had no power, no status, and no rights. And some were even considered disposable. They were the lessers of society. And Jesus pulls one of these kids up, puts them in front of them, and says... Whoever welcomes one of these welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes God. And that this one is great. If you're like him or her, this one is great. Because those who are needy are those closest to grace. The disciples were worried about status. They were worried about authority. They were worried about power. Jesus is worried about the love. Jesus is worried about the things cast aside. And Jesus is saying that greatness isn't defined in the kingdom of God, isn't defined by what you have, by your degrees after your name, by your status in society, by whether you have a blue check mark on Twitter that you paid for, by whether... um, By what your friends think of you, greatness in the kingdom of God belongs to the lowest of people. In the kingdom, everyone matters. Everyone matters. Could it be that we often, like these disciples, focus on the very things that are contrary to what Jesus focuses on? We care about comfort. We care about ease. Americans love, I'm included in this, love to make our lives as easy as possible. We automate as much as we can. We care about wealth. We focus on success and the size of our 401 K so that we can have a posh lifestyle until we die. And Jesus, well, Jesus focuses on the needy. He sees a world in pain and he calls his disciples to walk into that. And it's not to say that any of those other things are bad. But when they become our focus, we've lost it. And Jesus is saying that greatness in the economy of God has nothing to do with the stuff of earth. And that we can't keep living, building up the same things that the world around us builds. When Jesus comes and says, you know what? The greatest person here is the one who needs me the most. And the ones furthest. The ones society pushed down. We should be people who care about the things Jesus cares about. Who don't cozy up. To idols of the heart like wealth and money and power. But who go to the least of these. To the lost. To the low. Why? Because that's where Jesus is. The disciples miss this. And we often do too. But Jesus never fails us in our failings. And he was, sees the inner thoughts of the disciples' hearts. And can we just let that sink in for a minute? Because I think there's something really beautiful about that. That Jesus doesn't leave them in their failures. In fact, he sees the, them at their ugliest, at their very core. And he chooses to teach them and to love them and to draw them closer To himself, and he sees the very things that motivate you at your core the things you try to hide, the things that are not so great about your personality, the the character flaws of your own heart, the things you're really striving after. He sees those things, and he isn't repulsed by them, but he actually runs to that place and invites you somewhere new with him. That's our Jesus. He doesn't fail us in our failings. Well, the John pipes up. Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow us. And then Jesus said, don't stop him because whoever is against you is for you. Once again, the disciples missed the mark. They missed who Jesus is. They They had a failure to depend. They had a failure of faith. They failed to understand the plan of God. They failed to understand what greatness is with God. And now they're like setting up a little competition. Hey, there was someone over there. He was doing amazing things, but we told him to stop because he wouldn't follow us. And Jesus is saying, don't stop him. Scholars say that this was ecclesiastical snobbery, like like a rivalry of sorts that they were setting up. They think that because another person is ministering that wasn't one of them, that they should stop it. But Jesus won't tolerate it. The disciples want to keep setting up a greatness game, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're missing it. He invites them to take a different form of the low road, and that is the road to humility. Where they're not propping up themselves but where they're going low and propping up other peoples, where they invite a way of humility among themselves, a way of deference, a way of trusting God to sort things out, and a way of just believing in Jesus. Rivalry has no place among God's people, but humility certainly does. They're to replace a spirit of contention with the spirit of Collaboration. I mentioned that in each of these failures, there's also an invitation that Jesus offers us. It's an invitation that was extended to the disciples and it's extended to us here today. And the invitation is the same invitation that God said on the on the mountain with those disciples when he was transfigured, when he said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. The invitation in all of this is to listen to Jesus. And we listen to him by learning to depend on him and by learning to believe in what he says and in who he is. He is the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the one who is here, who has come, and who has died and who has raised again. And the one who has sent us out and given us his spirit on mission. That is who he is. He is the one that said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He is one who has said, all authority has been given to me, so go and make disciples. He's the one who has called us to live in a new way in the kingdom of God, of loving God and of loving neighbor, of of laying down our own selves, of being humble before him. And he's inviting us to believe in him to trust in him that what he says is actually true that he will come back and make good on every promise. This is an invitation to rest in who he is, to have confidence in what he said. It's also an invitation to to live like Jesus in the world, to walk in his ways to realize that we can do this because he calls us to do it and he has given us his spirit to empower us. It looks like a living by a different set of values in the world around us. It looks like less of pursuit of self and more the pursuit of God and the loving of others. Jesus never fails us in our failures. We have a savior who took his, our sins upon himself, on the tree, in his body. He did all of that for us. He, he bears with us when we fail in all of our striving, in all of our failures as a parent, in all of our failures to follow him. Jesus doesn't let us go, but uses them to form us in to who we are and to form us into the image of Christ. He he used these failures and if we were to speed ahead into the book of Acts, we'd see these disciples actually get it and live it as they as they preached the good news to others with boldness, some even costing their lives, as they shared what they had with other people, as they loved the world around him, as they as Christians ran towards injustice. We see they Get it. And Christ uses those things, those failures in our lives to help us get it.